So when I went to Ireland, uh, I did 44 distillery tours in 24 days. Holy cow. And, and, I, and he's done Jim Beam three times. And I've done Jim <laughs> so, Beam three times. Yes. So if you combine that with everything in Kentucky, plus all the other stuff you've done around the U.S., yeah. well, you're at what? I'm at uh, about, I'm over 250 distilleries, 150 in the U.S., 100 overseas. Oh, wow. So That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So how many distillery tours have you been on? Two? Five? How about 20? Well, it doesn't matter, because as many as you've done, our guest today has done more. Drew Hanish, he's the author of multiple books, including Experiencing Kentucky Bourbon, experiencing Irish whiskey and a new one coming soon on Tennessee. Plus, he has his own whiskey podcast called Whiskey Lore, but he has also visited over 250 distilleries across the world. That's a ton of miles traveled. So we dig into his passion and why he continues to visit distilleries and even revisit some more. Then we discuss how he doesn't get fatigued because if you're like me and Ryan, it sort of feels like a lot of the same process and stories told over and over again. But then we also dive into some other hidden gems across Kentucky and even talk about the boom of craft distilleries and if he plans on hitting every single one of them. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Uh, this week's idea comes from Logan, who writes us on Patreon. Logan's a Patreon member. Thank you very much, Logan. And uh, wants to know what my thoughts are on the upcoming supposed barrel shortage. And he talks about how it's going to come to a head in 2025. Look, here's the thing about barrels, right? Barrels are dependent upon trees, oak trees that are usually growing in the Appalachian area. They're dipping out west now as well. But it's dependent upon oak, specifically white oak, corcosalba, that distillers are used to having. And there has been a lot of reporting on those trees dwindling. Now, those trees get cut down for like housing developments. They end up getting used in uh, construction materials. It's not just for bourbon barrels that they're being used for. But I would say that the distilling industry is probably the most proactive of all the industries that are out there using trees because they're out there planting them. They're out there trying to encourage isolated harvesting instead of clear cutting. I mean, these, the people who are the foresters who are connected to the, to the bourbon industry, I mean, these are some of the most conservation minded people you will ever meet. And that shortage is something that they think about every single day. And they, there's a lot of distilleries that plant trees like, you know, Angels Envy, you know, has a campaign where they plant a tree all the time. I think Rabbit Hole did one. There's quite a few others. That I, I, I can't think of mine, and I apologize if, I, if you're not coming to my mind right now, but there's a lot of distillers that fill a barrel, plant a tree. I mean, that's a, that's a real strategy out there. So, I mean, this is an issue. It's an issue, and there have been talks about removing the uh, new charred oak barrel law and allowing used barrels to be used in bourbon. I think that won't go anywhere. That happened once before back in the 40s and it happened again in the 50s 
So this is not anything new. What it comes down to, though, is the barrels are still going to be there. The The price for the barrels are going to go up. You're also going to have a lot of smaller cooperages that figure out clever ways to use new woods. You're starting to see new types of barrels enter the finishing process. So I think there's going to be a lot of creativity here you know, to compensate for a potential barrel shortage. But even in my lifetime, we've seen this before, where there was a great barrel shortage in 2009, and that was really more connected to labor. Uh, people weren't cutting down trees anymore, you know, so it was uh, the people who cut down trees were aging out. And so younger generations were not really very good with a chainsaw. So that's changed a little bit. It's been kind of come in vogue to have those kinds of jobs, I think, a little bit more. So I think that this is not going to be as bad as everyone makes it out to be, but there is some need to be concerned. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Thank you so much, Logan, for hitting us up on Patreon. If you'd like to be like Logan, become a Patreon member or hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Ask your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Ryan here today talking to somebody that's going to be a, a new guest for us. But this one is interesting because I had actually met our guest at a podcasting conference years ago. I think it was two or three years ago. And we had started talking because he also has his own whiskey podcast. But we started getting to know each other a little bit more. And then come to find out, this guy loves his tours. Loves, yeah. loves his tours. And we're all always like... All right, how fast can we get past these fermentation tanks and <laughs> learn about what's next here? <laughs> I know, I'm like, I've been on 
I don't know. He was telling me how many tours on. I was like, man, I've probably been on like a hundred and I don't want to do any more. <laughs> it's, it's incredible that you've done that many. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to kind of know more about the dynamic of what you see, because not only it's just Kentucky, but everybody knows that you can go to a distillery literally anywhere. Yeah. No, that's cool. Now. We we're, we're, you know, stuck here in Kentucky where we have the same ones and we have to go visit the same one. Like, and they're times. probably they're probably trading out the same people that know the stories oh, and they're yeah. just it's, bouncing around between locations. Yeah, they're definitely trading employees. Like, all right, <laughs> I'm tired of telling your story. I'm going to move over here and tell your story now. <laughs> yes, but he's also worldly traveled and will be able to talk about not only just Kentucky, but Irish whiskey and everything like that in between. So today on the show, we have Drew Hanish. He's the podcaster over at Whiskey Lore. He's also the author of Experiencing Kentucky Bourbon, as well as Experiencing, I believe, Irish Whiskey as well. So, Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and where were you before this? So, I actually... (laughs) You were on a tour, right? I'd say, yeah, I sort of smell a little bit like uh, like Jim Beam, because uh, I was over there doing the tour, and this is my third time doing it, and they've just re vamp the the tour so it's like seeing it again for the first time at least half of it at least half of it yeah what was new about this time that really struck out with you that so people might want to know about it used to be when you'd walk in they would have a small craft distillery for you to view and so you would walk through it and see all the process and they could talk through it well they've completely remodeled that area and now they actually take you through the regular part of the distillery so you actually get to go see the fermenters you get to go in the warehouse which was not something they did in the past and for me the best part of the tour is to go into the warehouse and i'm always a little down in the mouth when i leave at the end if there isn't that opportunity to do it so it was it was fun to get to do that this time but the reason I have Knob Creek on my hand is because they also take you through a part where they tilt a barrel and pour a little bit out and then let everybody kind of get a sample by pouring it into your hand. You only get the drink out of the <laughs> you cup. Got, you just, you you just got to lick it off, it your, off hand. your hand. Yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of a fun way to it. But uh, the first time I did that, I was like, man, you know, when I tell people about this tour, I need to tell them to be prepared because there's an opportunity for you when they tilt the barrel to stick the glass under there and catch it out of the bunghole as it's, as it's rolling over. And I got doused with whiskey when I did it the <laughs> first time. This time I stood back and I let somebody else do it, but still ended up with it all over myself. So that's fine. Good. Don't need any more dry cleaning bills around. No, that. no. And then, and then I still keep thinking how you explain it to the officer when you're, uh, when you're leaving the place. I was on a bourbon tour. <laughs> I didn't drink. I just, yeah. I just stuck my cup out. Which in Kentucky, Kentucky, it might actually pass. Yeah. Like, okay, well, uh, like, yeah, that's, we that's, get it. We get it. That's that's an easy one. But before we get into that, I, I we kind of want to know about a little bit about your history because the bug has bitten you pretty bad. You're probably one of the most worldly traveled when it comes to visiting the most distilleries. I think we were talking before here, you've done over 250 different distilleries yeah, across the globe. 100 overseas and 150 here at least in the, in the States. So we'll talk about some of the dynamics between some of the stuff that you just said, but let's start before then. What got you into that and what made you want to really dive into whiskey in general? Well, it's funny. I started out, actually, I've been a web designer for... 20 years now. And when I got to, I got to a certain point where I said, what am I not doing with my life that I'd really like to do? And I thought I have always wanted to travel. In fact, before I started my web design business, I was going to school to, for journalism, to learn how to become a travel writer. And so business was going well. 
I had a staff. I was able to, I was finding I was just sitting in the back room looking for things to do. And I had read the book, The Four Hour Work Week. And yeah, there you go. And, uh, that's that's one of, inspiration to me. Uh, it's, yeah. it's Ryan's Bible. Yeah. I'm still not on four hours. No, <laughs> no. Well, what happened was I got myself so well optimized. I said I could go do some things and go do some of this travel. And I could just take a laptop with me and converse with my customers that way. And so I used that opportunity. And I started a, a travel blog called Travel Fuels Life. And my first big trip was to Europe and Originally, it was just going to be go to Paris, but I had 16 days, and I'm like, I am going to get bored in Paris That's for a lot 16 of days. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I got this brilliant idea that I was going to go across Europe and do the James Bond experience. I was going to go to every James Bond location I could find and just drive from one to the next. So I did that for 16 days, 11 countries, had a great time, came back here, and when I came back, I said, you know, this theme trip idea is really kind of cool. Maybe I should go do another one of those, but what would I do? And so my friends are, uh, and I were getting together for whiskey parties and we, we would sit down, each of us bring three whiskeys each, and then we'd sit there and talk about them. And we would talk about them like we knew what we were talking about, but I knew none of us did. And I wasn't a whiskey drinker. I, at that point, I was, uh, I was on beer and I was moving to wine because I wanted to taste something that I could talk about, whereas beer is kind of, you know. The hazy IPA, this one's a little more clear. <laughs> right. And so I said, okay, no, I need to really uh, learn about it. And what better way to learn? Kentucky's only six hours away. I live in South Carolina. So I packed up the car, plotted out a trip. I went to 19 distilleries in eight days. Mm, wow. <laughs> my God. I almost just choked on my bourbon drinking hearing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I really want, and I thought I'm going to video blog this. And what, I, what, what year was this, by the way? This was 2018. Okay. okay. I was about to say, cause Anything before then, it'd be hard to find 19 distilleries that were online. Yeah, yeah. And so I I got my list together. I started videoing myself when I would leave each distillery and talk about what I learned. It's like, okay, I started out at the beginning saying, I know nothing about bourbon. And I've tasted a couple of things, but I started at Maker's Mark, had the experience there, had a few things I cataloged, moved to the next distillery, learned a little something else. And it's like, in the first day or in the first, yeah, in the first day I went from Maker's Mark to Wilderness Trail to Town Branch. So I had already Yeah, you covered uh, Central Kentucky pretty well there. <laughs> yeah, and and diversity because I went everywhere from, an, uh, you know, from Maker's Mark, weeded bourbon to American Single Malt at Town Branch. And so, and then the science of Wilderness Trail and I thought you were going to say diversity in people because you, you, you started Lebanon and Loretta and then go you know, to Danville, to Lexington, you know, yeah, to ab- Metropolis. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, it was, and I had somebody ask me afterwards, they said, didn't you like get tired of hearing about the process after day two? That's, that would be my big concern. Cause that's typically when people, 51% corn. They, yeah. They, yeah. They, when people come and they say, Hey, what tour should I do? I never would say, let's do 19 distilleries in eight days. I'd say, <laughs> let's do probably three or four over the span, of, maybe even two or three of the span of three days. Yeah. It's, yeah. But yeah. you're, you're, you went all in though. Well, yeah, I, you're different. 2018 though, they didn't have as much, uh, 
reason to stay at each one. Or, I mean, they didn't have, like, the bars, the restaurants. All yeah, the, it the was experiences kind of the were, here, do the tour. And, and then uh, buy some, see you later. You know. Yeah, get your bottle wa- waxed uh, seal on your Maker's Mark bottle or whatever kind of thing going on. Yeah. In fact, when I was here, Old Forester just opened up. And so I was there the week it opened. That was the time that I was going through and doing the trip. And then I went to Barton. Barton was doing the estate tour, which was this big, long, extended tour that you could take. It was free. And you got to see just about every part of the distillery. Of course, the warehouse collapsed the day I was there. <laughs> no way. I'm like, okay, weird things going on. I remember. I think we were doing a barrel pick the day before. Yeah. Was was, no, no, no. It was the Monday after. Monday after. I think. Yeah. yeah. I remember being... I was on the golf course getting the news. And I was like, we got a barrel pick there. And it's like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's not the one we need to be in. Yeah. yeah, really. So it was it was interesting. Everyone I went to, I found something different. When I started listening for the process, it was listening to the differences between you could tell by each distillery you went to what they took pride in and what just by listening to the tour guide. And so I started listening for those little nuanced things like are, how long are they fermenting for and why are they fermenting for that long and why are they using uh, you know column stills and uh, and that even grew bigger once I went to Scotland and started doing trips there because I wasn't seeing column stills and that, then when that's a vast difference between here and the rest of the world yeah and then uh, you walk into Woodford Reserve and you see those three beautiful pot stills now six I think which means I need to go back there too because that's changed now. Got to get your stamp done. Exactly. We got the updated one. Yeah. And that's the funny thing is I've never gotten the book stamped because I know I'm so ADD. I'll walk out of the place and then be halfway down the road going, (laughs) I didn't get it stamped. So I don't even bother. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, so each distillery had something interesting about it. And the other thing was the history part. I absolutely love whiskey history. It just sucked me in at the very beginning. But I also found that distilleries were telling bits of bourbon history, but they were not telling them. One one would contradict the other. Like uh, bourbon came from, the name bourbon came from New Orleans or it came from Kentucky. I'm like, I got to find out the answers to this. And so that's when I, I came home and did the Whiskey Lore podcast because that was my idea of let me research, find out the answer and do it. But all of that came out of 19 distilleries, 17 in Kentucky. And then I did the, the Dickel and the Daniels tour on the way home. And so you found out what at the end of it, that there is no answer to where the name bourbon came from. I found out that it's not new Orleans. It's definitely (laughs) not new Orleans because I actually did a podcast episode where I talked to a drinks podcaster down there who said, there's a man who wrote the history of bourbon street. Cause that's the idea is that it came from bourbon street and Bourbon Street didn't become a party street until World War II. Prior to that, it was a neighborhood. And it got an opera house in 1860, but that was the only business on the street. So the idea that people were coming down to some dive in on Bourbon Street in 1820 when the name started showing up can't be true. So it had to have come from somewhere else. And it's very likely, although I have a Pennsylvania friend who's been telling me, you know, there was a Bourbon County, Georgia, that was on the Mississippi for like three years, and maybe it could have come from there. And I said, eh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a stretch. How Georgia connected? <laughs> that might be that might be a little tight. Three years to have a name catch on, 
but it's interesting because as you start digging into all of this stuff you, you you start to realize how many myths we've kind of have, have taken on a life of their own over time well, yeah even brand names have taken a life of their own for the most part you know yeah, yeah. got yeah. fictitious people like ezra brooks and Maybe Elijah Craig existed. I don't know. He he he, existed. Existed. he was he was a pastor, but there the idea that he was the inventor of bourbon is is only it is lore at the end of the right, day. Right, right. What's funny is if you go to Georgetown where his old grist mill was, there's a historic sign, but it says that he was the inventor of the sour mash process, which isn't true. I'm like, wait, where does that come from? That's supposed to be Doctor Crow, yeah, and, and he wasn't Crow, and and he wasn't the inventor of the sour mash process because it was being done before that. So see, I'm, that's what I was like. For some reason, I know Crow stuck out at me, but I can't remember who was before then. Yeah. So there was a. I'm going to write my own history. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing: I don't think you can be wrong. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. And then once I went over to Scotland, I saw the same thing. It's a lot of people. Actually, when I was in Scotland, I bumped into somebody who said, you know, there was a Cooper's Union in the United States that pushed the legislation in 1935 that we use single use barrels. And I said, you know, as long as I have been researching stuff in the U.S., I haven't heard that anywhere on any tour or anybody really talking about it. And so I started trying to dig into it and find out, and I, I I really was getting nowhere. Only recently have I started to find out that, yes, there was a Cooper's Union, and that nobody here talks about the fact that it was that Cooper's Union that actually pushed to get single-use barrels. I always wonder. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I just thought it was Independence Day if you're saying, yep, you got to use news. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best business model ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating this stuff. We take it all for granted because we hear it over and over and over again. But a lot of that stuff is is just taken on a life of its own over time, and we just assume it's correct. So as one of the most traveled people when it comes to visiting distilleries, we'll just we'll just start across Kentucky. So what have you seen as the dynamic between small and big? What do you get on a tour versus anything else that you could help people? try to navigate as they come through here to say, listen, these are, these are great, but you're going to get the same kind of generated marketing message versus something you know, down here might be something very raw and organic and might be able to experience as a, as a more, I guess you could say concentrated whiskey consumer. Yeah. I think the thing that I like to, and what I advise in the book is that people don't stick to just brand names, you know, and make a mix because I think the advantage comes in you going to say a wild turkey and seeing it in a, on an industrial size and then mixing in a three boys uh, and seeing how a small farm has turned into distilling whiskey and allowing people to come in and do tastings in there and pick their own barrels and pour their own whiskey and that sort of thing to trying to find midsize ones because I think that there's a lot of diversity in this state. This state's more polished probably than many other places you go to because there's been a bourbon trail here since 1999. So Yeah, you were talking about that before, and that's one of the big reasons why Kentucky has to because it is a it is now becoming a, a burgeoning of a, just a boom of tourism. And so they have to be polished. They have to give a great experience versus probably some of the places outside of the state if you're either in South Carolina or New York or Texas or Florida. It's probably just a – it's not the forefront of what they're thinking of. 
they say, well, sure, show up and we'll show you around, but we don't have... It's, it's we sanity don't have. over vanity. I've heard <laughs> yeah. say. You don't have to go to their website and book it three months in advance for your two o'clock tour on a Tuesday. That's, right, that's what I'm thinking. Right. And that's the thing I found between, you know, Scotland and Kentucky have been doing this for a long time. So when you go on a tour in Kentucky or you go on a tour in Scotland, that you'll usually get a Glen Cairn glass or something like that at the end of your tour. And so there's some things like like that that are fairly standard in those two countries or if you're going to a scottish distillery they have zero tolerance so they really you really shouldn't be drinking and driving there uh when you leave a tour whereas in oh really yeah whereas in kentucky they've they've, (laughs) here's your keys well there's a barrel proof whiskey see on your way (laughs) they've they've worked it out and that that's one of the things i wanted to learn when i first did this was how do you do this because i'm a solo driver I, I you know what am i gonna do well it's 0.08 for the alcohol level and they can't serve you more than quarter ounce or a half ounce yeah, or something a like half that. ounce and they can do t- 10 samples but they all have to equal i think a one and a half ounces is the most one, one and a half right, ounce total right. yeah but in scotland they don't have that but in scotland they have driver's packs that will give you mini bottles to take with you oh, nice. if you are the driver oh do you have to wear like a Write black? That one do you have to wear a, a black like uh, <laughs> a Sharpie X on it? Like if you have a driver, yeah. if you're driving, it's like you're under eighteen trying to go in the club. There yeah. you go. <laughs> what I but see the the trick behind that is that sometimes you will go to a distillery where they only give you one mini bottle, whereas you could have been tasting three different whiskeys. So I tell people bring a bunch of little mini bottles with you, empty mini bottles, put numbers on them. And then when you go to the distillery, take a little sip and then pour the rest of it into your mini bottle. And then that way you can take it back that evening and have a chance to taste all three rather than only getting to taste the one little mini bottle, which is probably their flagship whiskey that you've already tasted a million times anyway. So, yeah. That's an interesting take on it. I mean, now that I think about it, that's a, that's a great thing that people here could probably embrace because there is typically always somebody that is, you know, the designated driver, which is great. It's a saint. It's a great thing to have, but be able to have something for those types of people that have to, I want to say, take the sacrifice for the group, but somebody sometimes should. But the other side of it is we always tell people too, they're like, Oh, how do I get Ubers or how do I get taxis? How do I get this? And I go, to be fair, when you go to a lot of these distilleries, they're not getting you drunk. You're, you might have a cocktail beyond that. Or if you're having a drink beyond that, you're you, to get to the next one, especially if you're going to another city, you're another 45 minutes away. So the odds of you trying to do it all is it's very unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. just not enough time. <laughs> yeah. But then you end up in Ireland and Tennessee and it's a little bit more wild west because they haven't been doing this for that long. Yeah, so yeah. The, talk about that. Yeah, so Ireland doesn't have driver's packs. So the, I went to one distillery that did. But beyond that, when they saw me pulling my little mini bottles out, they went, ooh, that's a good idea. <laughs> right? So um, so that's what happens when you, you're kind of emerging that way. When you go to Tennessee, I think they do have a limit, as, as Kentucky does. I will go to some places now. In Kentucky, Tennessee, you're going to find a lot of moonshine places as well. So they got like, 10 different what I call communion cups that they've, you know, put just a couple drops in each one for you to, to try the different, you know, moonshines or, or whiskeys. Apple pie and cherry and cinnamon and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. So 
you may find that you may walk in and find that they just come over and pour you one big sample of whatever it is that they want to impress you with at that point. So it just depends. And again, sometimes it's the distillery owner or the distiller that comes over and talks to you there. I can't think where that really happens so much here, maybe at like Ambie Roland and, you know, places like that, but, but there's very few of them barred a lot of the ones in Western Kentucky probably, but the ones in Eastern Kentucky, it gets a lot harder to find those kinds of experiences. You sound like a very equal opportunity drinker at the end of the day is what it, what it sounds like. What have you found as the big difference if people are trying to get into bourbon or get into Irish whiskey or get into whatever or moonshine? Like, How are you able to sit there and, and look at them all with a, an even scope? Mm-hmm. Because I look at it and I go, well, I'm I'm a bourbon guy. I don't really care to go drink Irish whiskey. You, on the other hand, have said, I'm going to go explore everything So, con- and, and scotch in general, too. So how do you look at it with, like I said, an, an open eye and, and kind of give everybody their, their fair shot? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today, shopify.com slash bourbon. What have you found as the big difference if people are trying to get into bourbon or get into Irish whiskey or get into whatever or moonshine? Like, how are you able to sit there and, and look at them all with a, an even scope? Mm-hmm. Because I look at it and I go, well, I'm, I'm a bourbon guy. I've don't really care to go drink Irish whiskey. You, on the other hand, have said, I'm going to go explore everything So, con- and, and scotch in general too. So how do you look at it with, like I said, an, an open eye and, and kind of give everybody their, their fair shot? Well, for me, it's really, uh, before I started drinking whiskey, I didn't pay attention to what anything tasted like. I came from Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. We just ate every, you put, if there was salt on the table, that was bizarre. <laughs> why is there salt on the table? You know, flavor enhancer. I, why? So. Use me at calories. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so I just didn't really pay any attention. And then once I started digging in, and I've heard this a lot, and I, I agree to it to a certain extent, that bourbon has a flavor profile that if you say it's like um, 60% of the scale, when you go to Scotch, Irish whiskeys, and you know more the single malt character and working with the different barrels and all that stuff, you really start to expand out to the full 100%. And so for me, it was like wanting to, to find different flavors. What's interesting is that bourbon is now getting into blending getting into using different types of, of finishing casks, it's starting to pull in those things that have made those other whiskeys interesting and a bit more diverse. A lot more use of rye. To me, rye is, I consider it America's version of peated whiskey. Because oh, gosh, it, don't be, say that. Well, <laughs> well, from, I'm not a big fan of peat. So. Right. But the thing about peat is that it's, uh, it's something you want to drink a younger whiskey on. And if you put it in the barrel for too long, it loses its personality. Yeah, yeah. And rye to me is a complex grain that the more you keep it in the barrel, the more you take away from what makes it a great grain. I could agree with that. I think rye whiskey is like really good at from three to like six years old. And then it kind of levels off and then it doesn't really pick back up till you get into like the 14, 15 older, way older expressions. Yeah. And then it's a manage it's managing those casks, you know, at that point. I mean, the, the thing we talk about with, with bourbon is getting to those older ages Boy, you got to really baby that, that cask over in Scotland and Ireland, they got the weather that makes it much easier to let it sit in that barrel without becoming a, a a wood bomb. In fact, when I was in Ireland, I tasted a 75 year old whiskey. It had sat in that barrel for 75 years at the Kilbegan distillery. And I thought it was going to taste like wood and it was fruity. And I went, this is just absolutely incredible. But basically it was a barrel that got lost in the corner and Those are the best. nobody <laughs> touched it for 75 years. So you just happened to be there the day that they said, hey, you want to try this in the industry? <laughs> well, that was me going to Great Northern Distillery, which is where John Teeling, he's the guy that really kind of helped re-energize the Irish whiskey industry. Great Northern is like our MGP. It is where everybody goes to get started. They grab juice from there, age it. In fact, I would say that probably 30 to 40% of the Irish whiskeys on the shelf probably come from Great Northern distillery this is the information i'm waiting for it's like, <laughs> all right it's, it's just not american whiskey it's it's flooded everywhere it else is too. it yeah. is absolutely and so uh it was while i was there that i was talking to the production director he was giving me a tour of the place and he started pulling out bottles of whiskey for me to try because he could see how interested i was and so he brought up you're like by the way i'm writing a book on this <laughs> bring out your best so he had that the 75 year but he also brought out this rickety looking bottle brown bottle that looked like it was handmade and it likely was because they said they had the bottle dated and it was from around the 1880s gosh and that it had been found under a barn in tyrone ireland and that they had it tested and it was whiskey and he said so let me pull a bottle out they had moved the whiskey out of that into another bottle let me give you a sample of that so we're talking about a whiskey from 1880 something. It was the most bizarre whiskey I <laughs> was, ever tasted. That's what I was to say. It tastes like mothballs. Yeah. Mothballs, yeah. Maybe. Well, it was one of those that, of course, he only gave me like a little bit to, to go off of. 
but it actually was <laughs> there's not probably not much to go around so yeah it's exactly. like their last drop distiller so but it was like you put it on your palate and it just started changing flavors so fast that it was like i can't keep up with this i it, and it's like there was a funky note that was coming in on it and he said likely the yeast it got a yeast infection and was creating an issue with uh he said the distiller obviously was skilled but something went wrong with the yeast probably and that's where that funky note is coming in because he could see on my face when i took a sip of it 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 was like whoa where did that come from so they decided to just bury it underneath a barn that's that's the best way to do it in ireland is there a big emphasis like on kentucky bourbons or you know, we, you got to make your own or you got to be ma- or, or sourcing and blending and that. OK, over there. So it's interesting because it is they've gone through the same renaissance that Tennessee's going through. You know, Tennessee only had three distilleries up till 2010. Ireland was basically the same in 1960. Did there were some weird law like Tennessee because Tennessee had that crazy law that no new distilleries can be they, opened they, or something. There are so many things that that killed Irish whiskey and brought it down to basically where there was only one company running two distilleries, Bush Mills and Middleton. And in 1960, I think it's the New York Times did a, uh, a a story and they had asked people about Irish whiskey and they said the Irish make whiskey. <laughs> so this was how bad it got up to a certain point. But when I start working on this book, they're only about 10 years in to their explosion of distilleries. These 44 distilleries, 40 of them are in the last, you know, seven, eight years. And so when I would talk to the different distillers or, or founders of these distilleries before I started doing the trip, I would have some people say, why are you doing this? Because you know, a lot of these distilleries aren't making their own whiskey. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Well, I'm going to find out. Well, every single one of them has pot stills. So every one of them is, or column stills. And so everyone is making whiskey over there. It's just, they're having to source. And so it's very similar to, especially what's going on in Tennessee now, but what Kentucky has gone through with some of the newer distilleries as well. And the attitude is basically overall people who are in the know over there are very supportive and they're doing everything they can to, you know, I heard rising tide lifts all boats from so many people over there. So it's really that kind of an attitude, but there are a few who are like, this is all fake. You know, it's like, it's not, uh, it's not really happening the way that everybody's saying it is. And that was what was fun about doing this. Cause I'm really the first person, even the Irish whiskey association hadn't traveled to all the distilleries in Ireland. And some of the ones that I went to weren't open yet, but they were either opening in a few weeks for the first time, or they were going to be opening, you know, sometime in the next couple of years, like, um, Sazerac just bought uh lock gill, which um, they will be making patties and Michael Collins whiskey. And so I got a chance to tour that they're doing a massive renovation on a mansion that is next to it. And then they're taking this old VCR tape factory and turning it into a whiskey distillery. And it's in the most beautiful place you've ever seen in your life. So when they get it done, it's going to be amazing, but it's going to probably take three, four years before they 
come around to getting it done. We'll put ours at a Betamax facility. We'll one-up. We just need a facility. <laughs> That'll be your, Jap- your first Japanese whiskey? Yeah, maybe. Since that was yeah. a Sony thing? It's true. That's true. Yeah. And so to kind of bring it back a little to, to Kentucky, as you've been going through here, what what is still making you interested in going back and revisiting a lot of these places? Because I look at it and it's... I'm sure a lot of people out there, they go, oh, you know, I've toured Jim Beam once. We, we've done that. I've done Heaven Hill once. I've done X, Y, X, you know, whatever it is. What What is it for you that makes you want to go back? Is it because you know that there's been some adaptation to the tour? Have they done expansions that you just want to learn more about? What makes you really drive to want to continue that educational experience? So part of it is coming up with a second edition to the book. Part, part of it's selfish. Okay, I get it. Yeah. I, I, told, uh, I, I told somebody in Ireland, I said, you know, the whole reason I'm doing this book before the industry's 100% ready is for the purpose of me getting a chance to understand Irish whiskey because I knew nothing about Irish whiskey before that. But the other part was I get to come back three years from now, do all the tours again and revise the book so that you, people know what the tours are like. Part of the reason I'm so dragging my feet on this Tennessee book is because I went only as I was going to go to Ireland in April of 2020. That got canceled. Yeah, it was like some things happened. So Tennessee's right next door. And so as things started to open up, I started touring the distilleries. The problem, though, is that the way people did distillery tours then changed because they weren't letting you taste out of Glencairn glasses. They weren't, uh, everything was had to be sanitized and rubber gloves and they were handed to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I even found that when I came back to Kentucky and went to places like old Pogue, or I went to some of the other distilleries I hadn't put in the book is that I thought this isn't necessarily the way the tours are going to run a year from now when everything starts opening back up again. And what's interesting is distilleries like Buffalo trace, you know, when I went there, Initially, when you walked up, there was a tour leaving every 15 minutes. You didn't have to reserve a thing. You just walk up and they put you on a tour. Uh, now it's like on Tuesday, the first Tuesday of the month or something is when they open the, the tickets up. and Something crazy. And you got to know at least 30 or 60 days in advance and the time and the day that you want to be there. Yeah. And then there's so many new distilleries as well. So it kind of opens the the doors to coming back and visiting some of those as well. As for the ones that are larger, there's a, did I need to go back to Jim Beam? Probably only because I had heard that they had done a big revision to the tour. And one of the things I don't want people to have an experience with, with the book is going in and reading it and saying, Oh, I really want to go to this distillery. Barton is a great example of that. I gave high praise to Barton and then they shut their tours <laughs> down. True. So, I mean, that's a hard like part. Rick, <laughs> you have to do the Rick Steves model where you come with one annually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but also the thing is on the tastings, the tastings are changing because as more, of this finishing is going on as more as they're expanding and trying to come up with different variations on the whiskeys that they're making. Again, it makes it more interesting to go back and get a chance to do the tastings and rediscover or Jim Beam is a good example for me that I don't have a lot of bottles of Jim Beam product at my house. So this is my chance for me to go back and taste things again and go, okay, is that going on the shelf? Or is that not going on the shelf? That sort of thing as well. Child tub and all the cool stuff you don't, yeah, it's that 
right there at the gift shop. And two, a lot of these places have, you know, new restaurants and oh, yeah. you know, new just hangout areas and this and that. How would that differ from Ireland to Kentucky? You know, like how do they, I guess, Keep Kentucky, there. well, Kentucky's kind of evolving to this Napa mindset. Like we want you here as long as possible, having cocktails, you know, at Barcelona, you can play bocce ball out there and have slushies on their patio right. and this and that. So how's it differ from Ireland? Are they just like strictly tours, get you out? And Not really. Um, there are distilleries. If you go uh, to Donegal, there's the Crowley Distillery. It's built in an old doll factory, and it also was a carpet factory at one point. So it's this historic building that they've built the distillery into. They'll show you carpet that they made there that was put on the Titanic and uh, in the in the White House. And so they, they'll tell you bits of history about the area as well. So they're trying to feed that in. But they also have a place that you can go in and uh, a, a little restaurant cafe where you can eat local fare and get to know. So if your family is from Donegal and you've gone to Ireland for this idea of I would like to go back and learn my roots, you can actually go to a distillery and get a little primer on some of that background and actually taste the local fare as well. There's a lot of history in Ireland, obviously, so it's really easy for them to add in bits of their own culture and history in with the tours. And a lot of them are doing a nice job pulling that in. I love how you've become the fromers of the, of the, <laughs> of the, the tourism here for whiskey, because I honestly, I think it's one thing that, that is needed. Ryan and I talked about this, gosh, yeah, what a few weeks ago on the drive back from Bardstown. Cause people, yeah, go ahead. We, oh, we, yeah. We get, we get emails all the time. People saying, Oh, I'm going to be in Kentucky for three days. What do I do? And I'm like, well, at some point I'm gonna start charging to send emails <laughs> yeah. and writing PDFs and saying, here's your schedule because I'll say, here's one or two places I would not miss. Other than that, you're on your own. Or I'd say, and by the way, it's it's like, here's our Yelp list. As much as I want to help out, it's things change. People are going to be in Louisville. They're going to be in Lexington. They're going to be in Frankfurt. They're going to be in Owensboro. It's like, I can't help you. I'm not going to, I can't, I can't <laughs> yeah. be a party planner for you. Yeah. But and they're like, where should I stay? Where's I'm like, uh, Look on Airbnb. <laughs> they're like, I really, I had somebody last night. I was like, they text me like, hey, we're wanting to go to Buffalo Trace, Wild Turkey, and Four Roses. Where should we stay? And I was like, it's like, well, that's Lawrenceburg and Frankfurt. You know, I mean, you could stay there, but yeah. you know, it, don't expect much. And they're like, we're on a bachelor party. And I was like, I would definitely not. don't stay there. I was like, you stay in Lexington or Louisville, or, you know, and get transportation. Yeah, but that's one of those things. It's like you're doing a great job of that and be able to build out some of these things that people might not know about. And so for people that are coming to Kentucky, you had mentioned Pogue earlier. We've never, I've never been to Pogue. Mm-hmm. I haven't. It's, it, it's, it, it's far. It's, it's too far. far. It's never really thought about it. it I, I say it's far. This guy traveled from South Carolina to be <laughs> yeah. here and we're complaining like, that's too far. And so um, Danville's too far for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm curious from, from your aspect and, and your thought process, when you go to some of these other places, I kind of want to give our listeners what are some of those hidden gems that people don't know about? Because when everybody comes here, they always ask me, where should we go? And the only place that I always recommend is Castle and Key because of walking through history. It is just a very stoic, it is a beautiful grounds, and it's just something that you can just kind of take in as a whiskey. If you, if you listen to the show long enough, you know about E.H. Taylor history then you can understand it. But I'm curious about all the other places that you've been. What are those sums off the beaten path that maybe we don't even know about? Yeah. Well, I would say one of the things I really enjoyed when I was in that area was go to Woodford Reserve, then go to 
Glens Creek and Castle and Key. And again, you're going to get three completely different views, even though all three are associated with Dr. Crow, they all have their own personalities. And, uh, you know, Glens Creek is kind of that, uh, one that people may drive by, but you look and you see, there's the old Crow distillery from 1870 in ruins sitting next that you can go see that talk about it there in the old bottling hall for the old crow distillery. Uh, if you go out to, and this will be a good inspiration for you to go out to old Pogue. If you go to old Pogue, you've got the Augusta distillery and Augusta is a nice little town to, I, I sat there fascinated watching the ferry going across back across the Ohio river, bringing people across uh, and basically just, a beautiful day out there you're sitting on the on the docks looking out at this and watching people come in and go out just relaxing kind of a experience then drive on the other side of the road and there's baker and bird which has one of the oldest wineries in the united states if not the oldest winery in the united states and a distillery i'm see, things i never know about yeah see this is why we have them on the show <laughs> yep. and then if you do do like i did on my last trip i did those three then i drove up to newport and you got new riff which is fantastic and then you've got second sight which is really bizarrely interesting bizarrely interesting. bizarrely interesting they, so, yeah, yeah just, I, don't know, I don't know any of these things. <laughs> it's a fun little story to go up there and uh they have their the the pot still looks like a, a genie so and then they, he tells do you, do you rub it three times <laughs> whiskey comes out do not touch it. <laughs> how many times i've heard that on tours um and so and so you've got that as well and now I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh, Pension, which is uh, you can learn a little bit about Newport's prohibition time period. And uh, because they used to use that as a as a speakeasy. And so Pension Distilling is new. Uh, they have a, a still there, but I think they're actually sourcing at the moment as well. So but that's three things you can do in Newport and you can almost. Well, you couldn't really walk to all three, but <laughs> you can Uber, I guess. It's a sh it's a short drive. You can take a bird. Each. You can take a bird. You can take a <laughs> yeah. bird scooter between them. exactly. And then you got Western Kentucky, and there's a a bunch of them. I I say go out to Owensboro, definitely Green River, and then down to Bard Distillery. And then for people who don't have time to do the Kentucky Bourbon Trail and gather all the stamps that they need, you can get three stamps down at the state line tour which is three distilleries casey jones mb Rowland, and uh old glory which is in tennessee and you go to all three of those they each give you a shot glass and by the time you do the third one which you could do all these in a day they give you a little stave to put them on as part of completing the state line tour so lots of opportunities and then Dueling Ground is down there as well. There's there's a bunch of distilleries in that area now. So Dueling uh, Ground is that Franklin or close to that is uh, it's right on the state line, but I couldn't tell you. It's close yeah, to yeah. Franklin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that just goes to show you that he is well more traveled diverse than we are. In this. <laughs> no, we need to take a road trip <laughs> we, in, in Kentucky. Yeah, I was about to say because there's there's so many more places to go and and things to visit that I, maybe we just get stuck in our bubble of living in Louisville and just seeing. Bardstown, Frankfurt, Lexington, Lawrenceburg, and not really venturing out past that. But there, there are so many places that are popping up across Kentucky that it is worth experiencing all of them too. 
I'm pretty laser focused on Bardstown, though. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go figure. I'm from there, so it's oh, okay. figure. Go figure. Well, there are plenty of them around, that's for sure, and more growing as as we go. So, you know. yeah, I've heard good things about that Augusta Distillery. That's yeah. they, they've invested a ton of money in that, and a lot of cool things going on there. Yeah, but that sounds nice watching a ferry boat go back and forth. Yeah. Just, just calming, relaxing. It is. That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I don't know. We need that, Kenny, because nothing about our lives. <laughs> we'll we're at the higher own ferry boats to look at. That's what it's going to come down to. Right. So the other thing I kind of want to just touch on is just the vast majority of places that you've visited. Now that you've done a lot of these, are you, are you venturing across the entire United States as you're doing these two? Have you started looking at California and Nevada and Washington and Texas? And and what is your idea of, of trying to figure out how do I compare and contrast whether I create my own na- promo guide now? per state? Like what, what's, what's, the, what's the goal? Yeah, because how I, many distilleries are there now? 3,500? With 2,000 2, plus distilleries, yeah. I think yeah. like 22, 2,500 or something like yeah. that was the last report like that came out. a 1,000 of them are in Texas. <laughs> I, think, I think the craft report came out, as a, not a 1,000, but quite a bit There's in Texas. Bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, believe it or not, I actually, I, I joke about this. It was only last year that I finally got to all the South Carolina distilleries, and I live in South Carolina. My attention is always out somewhere else rather than in my own backyard. Yeah, that happens. But it's, I mean, I've Nevada, Frey Ranch would be smoke wagon. a fun one to go visit. Yeah, Smoke Wagon would be interesting. I, I know it's not a story. I was go, kidding. But go, yeah. go, see, uh, go see Aliens between uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and then uh, Colorado. Colorado to me has is one of the most yeah, a fascinating markets for whiskey. They are making some really good stuff in Colorado, and they're not all that far from each other, so you could possibly plant something out, and they do have a trail. Texas is another great example, and boy, talk about diversity of climates from Amarillo down to Houston and what could happen between there, and there are a lot of distilleries there. And then now Michigan, I'm, I did a uh, request on Instagram for some other places that are around and i was surprised how many distilleries there are in michigan which is where i was born and i'm like holy cow it's everywhere yeah traverse city's the only one that really had been on my radar but they're apparently all over journeyman is that that's a journeyman Journeyman, yeah yep so yeah there's no way i could write a guide for the entire u.s it would be fun and believe me the thought has crossed my mind to just pack up the car and say, even if I just did one distillery in every state and wrote a book about going to one distillery in every state, that would be fascinating for me. Yeah, then but, you're getting away from the four-hour work week. If, yeah, if right. <laughs> exactly. Although, do we call this work? Really? No, I, I hear you. <laughs> and so I guess kind of to, to wrap this up a little bit is I, I want to figure out a way that we give our listeners some of your knowledge on how you do all these tours, but how you keep it interesting to yourself. You had mentioned how you listen to a tour and you'll take away a certain aspect. You'll listen to their fermentation times. You'll listen to something different. I know Ryan and I, we're probably cut from the same cloth is that we go on these tours and our eyes glaze over because it's like, okay, here we go. It's mm. the same thing over and over, but maybe we're being too naive because we think we, we know it all or something and we're not paying attention to those small details. So what are some of those tips that you can give to listeners if, if you're coming on the trail and you're going to be going to three, seven, eight, 10, 12 distilleries, 
how do you get the most out of it where you don't feel like it's repetition all the time? Right. You got to buy the book. You buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) And and honestly, that's kind of where I was going to go with this is in writing the book. I, I, I've seen YouTubers who will take their phones and they will record the entire tour and then post it online. Yeah, that's and boring. Go, what, the, what is the fun in that? I mean, uh, and honestly, the idea of going there, smelling the smells, you know, experiencing the people that you're on tour with and having conversations, that sort of thing. But what I wanted to do with the book was I wanted to, the first section's learn, which is learn what is bourbon, what's its history, not its entire history, but enough history that people can go, okay, now when they're talking about this, I understand what they're talking about. And then I go into the process and I walk them through the process and I say, here are some of the things you should listen out for while you're on your tour. And here's, here, here are the basics with the idea that I'm giving you enough understanding that when you go on three or four tours, because I'm a realist and I realize that I'm probably one of the few people in the world that's ever going to go to this many distilleries. I think for most people, it's a trip of a lifetime to come to Kentucky and be able to go to four or five distilleries. That would be amazing to be able to do that. So I, I sort of take it from that standpoint as well. And so the idea there is get them to be able to understand what they're listening to and what to listen for while on, on the tour and things to ask their tour guide while they're on the tour as well, because once you ask certain questions, it opens things up. And then all of a sudden you start learning things that people haven't learned on other tours uh, because you've asked a question that prompted an answer you may expect or may not expect. Like, what's your favorite whiskey? <laughs> you know, you, hopefully they say the one that they're touring. Well, and that's the interesting <laughs> thing is that I have heard, had had them go, you know, I, I mean, I love this, but uh, boy, my favorite is, you know, and you may pull that out of somebody. Here's the tip to get the DeWalt brought out when you're in the warehouse. <laughs> so you start drilling into barrels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, you know, that's part of it. And then the way I designed the profiles was to say, here are the things that stood out to me in terms of the personality of this distillery. So the idea being, I don't want to give the distillery tour away, but I want you to be able to read it and go, this is a history focused one. This one is a science focused one. This is going to be more in the warehouse. This one's going to be, you know, and that sort of thing. So that you could go, these are my interests. And so I want to be able to pick out the right tours that are going to match those interests. And then that way you're educated I tell you my first time when I was planning those 19 distilleries and having to go on websites and age verify on everyone 16 times because it never would remember me, it got frustrating because it was all marketing. And this is an anti-marketing book. This is a book that is, here's what it is. I'm not telling you this one's better than that one. I'm just telling you what this one focuses on so that you can determine for yourself whether this is a distillery tour you like or not. Because I, I know I'm going to like things that other people aren't necessarily going to like and vice versa. So how do I write this universally so that you can basically be educated enough to be able to plan out the perfect trip for yourself when you go? I love it. So if, if you need to plan out your next trip, Please don't email me. Email Drew and buy his book. <laughs> First buy his book. And then if your question is not answered, then you can email there, him. There you go. There you yeah, go. that's that's the that's the proper way to do it. Yeah. Well, Drew, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show today. Sure. This was awesome. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that I 
in my opinion, I think you are easily the most traveled person to distilleries that, that I have been in contact with. <laughs> so being able to talk to you and you know the differences of what you're seeing in Kentucky distilleries versus literally anywhere across the U.S. and across the globe at this point. So it's really interesting that you've taken on this life's mission of yours to try and, and really just immerse yourself into this education. So it's really cool to be able to see that too. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's it's fun to do all of this stuff, but I, it, ultimately it's to help other people learn how to not have to go through what I go through when I'm learning all of this stuff. So I'll, I'll save you the airline miles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And now I'm saving you. You don't have to answer so many questions. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about you, listen to your podcast, find your books, how do they do it? Uh, you can go to whiskey-lore.com. It'll have connections to everything there, but I'm also on Instagram and all the other uh, social channels at whiskey lore with an E uh, for whiskey. I have to say that when overseas people are listening and then uh, the book's available on Amazon. So just look for experiencing Irish whiskey or experiencing Kentucky bourbon or type in whiskey lore and they'll both come up. I'm Love excited. It. Thank you for the book. I'm excited sure. to dive into it and see what a, uh... See what me and Kenny have been glazing over. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'm going to text Kenny, do you know this? (laughs) Nope, sure haven't. But that sounds like a three-hour drive. I'm not out for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. No, but Drew, this has been amazing. Thank you again for coming on the show. Make sure you follow him. Check out his books. Check out his other podcasts. I've listened to the podcast before. You've heard his voice on here. It is a very soothing voice as well he's he's a great (laughs) storyteller so make sure you definitely go and check that one out too but also make sure you check out bourbon pursuit wherever you get your podcast share it with a friend write a review follow us on socials all that good stuff but with that cheers everybody we'll see you next week toodles toodles